The scripture today is found in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 on page 955 in your pew Bible. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. Go ahead and... Keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 6, and let's pray as we look together at God's Word. Gracious Father, we have just sung in prayer our desire to hear from you, and so we echo that prayer again. And Lord, we know that to hear from you, we need your Spirit to work. So we pray, God, that your Spirit would, in fact, this morning, give us ears to hear you, give us eyes to see you, and give us hearts to understand and hearts that are ready to be changed by the truth of your gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe wholeheartedly that the gospel of Jesus changes everything. That what God has done to establish his rule and redeem us from our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, that this gospel of God's grace comes to us as we are, right where we are, but it does not leave us as we are. It comes to us in all our sin and brokenness, in all our weakness, but it changes us. It makes us new. Our sins are really forgiven. It really does bring forgiveness and newness of life to us. We're adopted into God's family. We receive a new heart, a heart that no longer delights in sin, but delights in Jesus and longs and desires to reflect his character, his holiness, his love. And I believe wholeheartedly that this gospel message has implications for every aspect of life that's why we've been looking at the series we've been looking at, how it touches each part of our lives. The gospel changes everything. So when we come to a sensitive subject like we have before us this morning, homosexuality, my firm conviction is that whatever we think or say about this subject and how we think and say it should be guided and shaped by the truth of the gospel of Jesus. That is our standard. That is our guide. That's our starting point, And it should be our ending point. In all matters of life. Not least the subject before us. Now the reason I've uh, chosen to address uh, this question this morning from the pulpit. Is not because I have an axe to grind. Or I want to pick on people or anything like that. Nor is it even because the Bible talks so much about homosexual practice, and so we should talk about it a lot too. The Bible doesn't talk very much about it. There are only six places in Scripture that directly address this question. Though one uh, could argue that it's assumed any time sexual immorality is discussed. But the Bible talks far more about greed 
or self-righteousness or dishonoring your parents than it does about this question. The reason we're looking at it today is twofold. First, because in our current series of exploring how the gospel shapes all of life, and particularly right now, life in the public square, homosexuality is one of the most dominant and debated subjects today. Churches are splitting over this. Families are splitting over this. Barely a day goes by where there's not something popping up in your news feed related to this subject. And so it, if we're going to have an informed perspective of the gospel in the public square, we need to think about this question. The second reason is because in my role as a shepherd, I have a responsibility before God, together with the rest of the elders, to lead, feed, and guide his flock here at Westgate. And the terrain that we're navigating with respect to this issue is ever-changing and increasingly confusing. And so we need to think about it. What should I actually think about homosexuality? Uh, Public opinion is vastly different today than it was just a, a handful of years ago. And even among Christians, acceptance of homosexual practices grown significantly. Is this issue as many people see it, primarily a human rights issue? Is that the category we should slot it in? A matter of equal opportunity and anti-discrimination on things like gender identity or gay marriage? Um, Is it, as others see it, more in the religious liberty category? Is that where we should slot it? The safeguarding of the rights of Americans to disagree with public opinion on the new majority in both faith and practice. Uh, And that's complicated by the fact that both sides would see this as an essentially moral issue. Some seeking to uphold the traditional values and biblical teaching, while others seek to overturn and update that teaching, alleging that it would be immoral not to do that. They see it as a moral issue on both sides. And of course, you can't forget the fact that For some of us, this is not a theoretical question. It's a very personal question. As we or someone we love is attracted to people of the same sex and have to navigate the social and emotional ramifications of either acting on those desires or refraining from those desires. What will people say or think of me either way? What will people say or think of my son or my daughter or my brother? And related to that, it then very quickly becomes an issue of identity, of who I understand myself to be, how I understand myself to be made, where I find my significance and value, how others categorize me or maybe marginalize me. And within that, then, it's also at the very same time a family issue. As parents wrestle with how how do I respond to my gay child? Or my children's gay friends who come over after school. This is a new thing for me. What do I do with this? Or children growing up in same-sex households. There's no end to the difficulty and delicacy of of, of so many different layers and perspectives on this question. And each of them carries significant emotional weight. It makes it hard to even have a conversation about it today. Because we're... You know, especially, you know, if, if you're in 
what is now the minority opinion. Uh, it's hard to even bring it up. Your fear of being labeled immediately. Um, just the last few years, we've seen corporate CEOs ousted and restaurant chains boycotted and guest speakers disinvited, not because of any actual discrimination against gay people, but simply for disagreeing with the practice. So it's a dangerous and dizzying subject. Uh, But again, I believe more than any other category that we might slot this subject in, that homosexuality is ultimately a gospel issue. It's the good news of Jesus that gives us the categories for making proper sense of it and shows us a way forward that offers hope and wholeness to everyone involved. We need a gospel perspective on it. So how does the gospel help us do that? Well, come with me to 1 Corinthians 6. So Paul's letter to the Corinthians is written to an ancient church uh, in Corinth that was, to put it somewhat mildly, a mess. Uh, this church is not unlike many churches today. Uh, They had become divided by selfish interests. They had become deluded uh, through worldly concerns. And so Paul's writing to this church partly in order to address uh, problems that have been reported to him, things he's heard that are going on that he's concerned about, and then partly to answer questions that the Corinthian church has asked of him. And in chapters 5 through 6, which are the broader section uh, that our passage uh, falls in, in these two chapters, he's addressing situations that have been reported to him, uh, things that are happening within the church that are completely contrary to the word of God and the message of the gospel. He criticizes them for tolerating sexual immorality among their members, for not even being troubled by it in chapter 5. And then he calls them out for taking advantage of one another by hauling their brothers and sisters in Christ to court. Lawsuits. We thought crazy litigation was the thing of today. It's all over there. And and Paul says, this is not the way you're supposed to be treating each other. This is out of step with the truth of the gospel. And the heart of Paul's charge and the Corinthian church's problem is that they are tolerating and even normalizing sin in their church life and personal experience, such that what God abhors has become no big deal to them. That's the problem he's addressing. And his tone is one of urgent appeal to a people who've lost sight of God and forgotten who they are. They've forgotten that the gospel changes everything. And his central appeal, his central plea, comes in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, our passage. He says again, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You can hear the urgency and alarm in his tone. But he continues, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is deeply concerned for this congregation. But if we look at his words carefully, what we see are not words of condemnation. Paul is appealing to them to remember and respond to the truth of the gospel. Remember and respond to the truth of the gospel. And there are two gospel truths that shape Paul's appeal here. First, the fact that sin really is sinful. Don't be deceived. And second, that grace really is sufficient to deal with that sin. But you were washed. Sin is sinful, grace is sufficient. And both of those gospel truths, both of those realities inform his response and ought to inform our response and our thinking on our subject today and any other subject we might talk about. You'll notice that homosexual practice is not the only thing listed in Paul's uh, list of sins here. In fact, it's not even the one he pays most attention to. He goes on for the rest of chapter 6 to talk about fornication. He's much more concerned, or at least emphasizing that more in our passage. But he does address it here. And because it's something we need to think about, uh, what I want to do is follow kind of this gospel-framed uh, response to this question and see if it can help us think through how we ought to think about and feel about this issue. Sin really is sinful. Grace really is sufficient. And we'll start here with the sinfulness of sin in verses 9 and 10. Now, of course, whenever you mention the word sin in a conversation about homosexuality, you've usually just ended the conversation. And the reality is I may have already lost some of you this morning. Uh, I hope that we can slow down and that you can bear with me and take a look at what God's word is saying. Because it, it does matter what God says about these things. And, and we're going to see that. Um, but, you know, know that I'm happy to grab Starbucks sometime later in the week if you want to talk further about it. But we need to, if we're going to really look at this issue through the lens of the gospel, we need to let the categories of the gospel shape that approach. And sin is one of the categories in the gospel. If we do not understand the problem of sin, we will never appreciate the gift of God's grace. But to really understand sin, we actually have to start with God and his holiness. Otherwise, we're not going to make sense of sin. The offensiveness of sin, why is it such a big deal, uh, doesn't really make sense until you measure it against the holiness of God. It's like how you don't really understand how dirty your gym socks have become until you buy a new pair and you see them side by side. It's like, I was putting those on my feet? We need to see the holiness of God to make sense of the sinfulness of sin. And the reality is that before God's holiness, we're not just a little bit yellowed or brown with a hole here or there. Our hearts are black and our lives are broken. The Bible tells us that the God who made us is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality 
who dwells in unapproachable light. God is over us in authority. He's beyond us in power. He's above us in majesty and wisdom. And he is for us in love. He's perfect in every way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.25, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. If God were capable of a dumb thought, his dumb thought would be more brilliant than anything we can come up with. That is how far above us he is. And that's what the Corinthians have lost sight of in their life and practice, in their relationship with God. And that's the first thing Paul's urgent to remind them of. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You have forgotten how holy God is. You have trivialized sin because you have a trivial view of God. The only way that someone can live as though sin is no big deal is if they believe that God is no big deal. And that's where the Corinthians are living. That's where some of us are no doubt living. And I encourage you to think about it. Where in my life have I trivialized sin such that it's just no big deal for me? And what does that tell me about my view of God? The Corinthians were unconcerned about sin in their midst. Paul's list, sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexual practice, thievery, greed, drunkenness, reviling, swindling, all of it, no big deal. But God is a big deal. God is a big deal. He made us for his purposes, and even though we've all rebelled against him, he sent his son to redeem us for his purposes. Which means we need to take sin seriously in our relationship with God, in our relationships with one another. Sin really is sinful. It is an offense against God, against his person, against his program. And apart from Christ, it will be met with just judgment. But does homosexual practice really belong on this list? Isn't that a bit outdated or narrow-minded? I mean, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, did he? And the Old Testament laws that prohibit homosexual sex also prohibit things like eating shellfish and wearing clothing made of two different kinds of material. And we don't obey those. Why do we care about that? And, and wasn't Paul speaking against more... Older men exploiting younger men or boys or, or, or people acting outside their nature or orientation. It wasn't his deal really with, you know, head, <clears throat> excuse me, heterosexual people having homosexual sex. Isn't that what he spoke against in Romans 1? I mean, Paul, did he even have a concept of, of a committed monogamous same-sex marriage that we have today? Because if he did, surely he would have nothing but positive things to say, Right? Of course, these are some of the many arguments that are offered today. They're old arguments. They've, they've been renewed today, suggesting that the traditional view of marriage has actually been wrong all along. And that 
homosexual practice doesn't belong on Paul's list, that he's not talking about what we're talking about today when we think about it. Now, obviously, time doesn't permit to kind of go through each of the passages in the scriptures that talk about that. Um, you know, there are other venues we can do that. Actually, one of the Sunday school classes next week, we're going to look specifically at some of those. But we can say a few things by way of summary. First, Jesus does talk about sex and marriage. And when he does, he upholds the creational design between one man and one woman. You can read that in Matthew 19. It's true that some laws apply to the church under the new covenant and some laws don't. But it's hardly arbitrary. And when the New Testament reiterates an Old Testament law, it's actually very clear. And that's what Paul is doing when he talks about homosexual practice in 1 Corinthians 6 here and in 1 Timothy 1. He's actually echoing the language of Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 in his discussion. When Paul condemns homosexual sex as contrary to nature in Romans 1, the context is clear. He's not talking about an individual person's nature or orientation. He's talking about the nature as in its creational design. He's talking about the created order of things. That sex is for marriage and marriage is for one man and one woman. Genesis 1 through 2. And it's simply not true that first century Jews lacked a category for the kind of homosexual committed marriages that we have today. History tells us quite the opposite. Historian and theologian N.T. Wright summarizes, As a classicist, I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium, or when I read the accounts from early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me that they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed. They knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term, reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It's already there in Plato. They knew about the whole range of options there. And so the uncomfortable reality is, and again, this is a longer conversation. And so by, by listing a few examples here, I'm not trying to end the discussion. I would love to open the scriptures together and, and look at that, if that would be helpful for you. But in summary, the uncomfortable reality is that, yes, homosexual sin belongs on Paul's list. It is contrary to God's law because it's contrary to God's design. And we cannot let ourselves be deceived about that and trivialize or even normalize what God condemns. But it's not the only thing on that list. And we can't forget that. If we're going to take the gospel seriously, that means we need to see that according to the gospel, all sin is truly sinful. And we have to keep that in mind in all of our conversations. Not just the the sexual variety or expressions that we find particularly offensive. Whether we're talking about greed or dishonesty, adultery, pornography, Anything that we do to disregard God's word and forsake him and his rule is treachery and high treason against God's throne. 
deserving of his judgment. And when we remember that, which is what Paul's hitting at, he's trying to hit, he's trying to make sure nobody can walk out of the room saying, well, this doesn't bother me. I don't have to worry about this. He is indicting all of us. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We all need a Savior, every single one of us. And the happy part of that is that that's exactly who Jesus is. It's exactly what he came to do, to rescue us, to save us from our sin and for a right relationship with God our Father. And that's the second gospel truth that Paul appeals to in these verses. Not just that sin is really sinful, but verse 11, that grace is really sufficient. It's able to deal with all of our sin in every way. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel is a message of grace. And that grace comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we talk about grace, when the scriptures talk about grace, it's not just talking about, it's more than forgiveness or tolerance. In scripture, grace is when God gives us something absolutely wonderful, even though we actually deserve something utterly terrible. That's God's grace. We deserve judgment for our treachery against his heavenly crown. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But instead, God gives us himself. He gives us himself. He cleanses us. He sets us apart. He acquits us of our sin. He adopts us into his family. He takes us from the dungeon waiting for our execution and makes a place for us at his dinner table. That's God's grace. And how is that possible? How can he do that? Only through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And we can only receive that grace by believing in him. Paul tells us here that the gospel of Jesus justifies us. It declares us not guilty of our sin. Even though we failed in countless ways, Jesus stands before us as our perfect representative in life and death he never sinned he never succumbed to temptation or rebellion he was perfect in his covenant obedience and when he went to the cross he took upon himself every self-serving action every unnatural desire every selfish word every cutting arrogant boast we've made everything that we've done wrong that falls short of his glory and standard Christ took it on himself that the judgment we deserve would fall on him instead. He bore the full weight of his father's holy anger against our sin in our place that he might rescue us for God. That's grace. We are justified. We are declared not guilty of our sin through the cross. God dealt justly with sin so he could deal mercifully with sinners. And so the gospel justifies us. It also sanctifies us. It sets us apart for service to God. Grace comes to us as we are, but it does not leave us 
where it finds us. It changes us. It sets us apart for God. Paul says later in chapter 6, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We need to recognize that in Christ, our lives are not our own to live. I think that that is where so much of the trivialization of sin in general and homosexual practice in particular, I think that's where a lot of it comes into play. That our temptation is kind of start with my life, what I would like it to be, uh, the things I want and think will fulfill me, my story, and then try to fit God into that. That's kind of the way that we operate. So the parts of God and his story that are beneficial, we'll take those. But anything that's uncomfortable, anything that doesn't otherwise contribute to my vision for life and fulfillment, we leave those out. It's little more than a baptized version of the expressive individualism that dominates our broader culture. And it is a trivialization of sin. It's no big deal because God's no big deal. But a trivial view of sin reveals a trivial view of grace. You need to think about that. If I'm trivializing sin, that means that I don't really understand what Christ has done for me or what it cost him to purchase me. I don't really understand that he has bought me out of bondage so that I can be free to live for him. I don't understand, I don't realize that living for him is the only place that I'll find true happiness and abundance of life. So we must start with God and his gospel and then see how our lives fit into his story. And his gospel sets us apart. He commissions us for service. He equips us for service. He slowly replaces our desires with his desires. The more we spend time with him in his word, in his in prayer, he changes us. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll no longer uh, face temptation. Doesn't even mean we'll no longer give in to temptation. And for those attracted to the same sex, it doesn't mean that those attractions will necessarily go away. They might. I have friends whose have. And I have friends who still have longings and desires, but have chosen to deny themselves for the sake of Christ. Which is something all of us are called to do in life. All of us, to deny ourselves, whatever it is in my life that comes between me and honoring Christ. I'm called to deny myself, to take up my cross, which means to die. That's where Jesus was headed when he took up his cross, to die to myself my desires, my agenda, and to follow him. We're all called to a cross-centered self-denial. The gospel is what sanctifies us and makes that possible. And then third, the gospel washes us. It cleanses us of all our guilt and shame. And that, I think, honestly, is the hardest part for some of us. I know it is for me. We can go there intellectually with the idea that we're declared not guilty of our sin. And we can go there volitionally in our desire to serve God. But we feel stuck emotionally, crippled by the shame of what we've done. 
what we've said, afraid of what people will think if they find out. But if you find yourself stuck in that shame, you need to remember that the gospel washes us. That God's grace is not trivial. It is sufficient to deal not just with our sin, but with our shame as well. The blood of Christ washes us. It makes us whole. It makes us new. We are not defined by our mistakes. We're not even defined by our successes. We're defined by Christ. We're defined by Christ. He is our identity. He is our significance. And he has cleansed us with his blood. All of us are fallen and broken in sin. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel changes everything. And so what can we practically say about a gospel-shaped way forward on this subject that offers hope and wholeness to everyone involved? few concluding thoughts. First, last, and everywhere in between, we must keep the gospel central. That's always going to be my answer, by the way. We must keep the gospel central in our hearts and our relationships. The gospel is what shows us that we are all the same. We are all the same before God. Our sin really is sinful and his grace really is sufficient. And we can't allow ourselves to trivialize either of those things. But in light of that gospel truth, as we kind of put it into practice in our lives and relationships, second, we need to cultivate a posture of humility, compassion, and care for fellow sinners in need of God's grace. For far too long, the church has been known by its judgment and condemnation on this issue rather than its compassion, humility, and care. And some will always accuse us of that judgment as long as we agree with the Bible on this subject. We can't do anything about that. But agreeing with the Bible on homosexuality doesn't make us more worthy of God's acceptance than someone who disagrees with it. Moreover, just as God did not wait for us to clean up our lives and then come down and save us, but came to us in the midst of our sin and mess to give himself. So we are called to lay down our lives sacrificially in love for our gay friends and neighbors and family, even if they don't agree with us. We need to cultivate humility, compassion, care. For some of us, that means we need to repent of self-righteous attitudes and of hurtful speech, the kinds of things we say flippantly in conversations that we don't even realize the offense that they carry or the the posts we put on Facebook or or things like that. We need to repent of our self-righteousness. And we need to grieve with our gay friends and family over the hatred that many of them have experienced. We don't have a category to understand some of that. But we need to grieve alongside them. For us here at Westgate, it means that this church must be a safe place for all sinners to be honest about their sin. Where we can wrestle 
together as a community dependent on Christ. Without fear of judgment or what are people going to think if I'm actually honest about what I'm going through. And the only thing that can create that real safety and oneness and openness is a shared dependence on the gospel. We have nothing to prove to one another because all we have is Christ. And so we need to keep the gospel central. We need to uh, cultivate humility and compassion and care. Third, we must take the power of the gospel seriously in our common pursuit of God. Looking to Christ for strength and hope amid our struggle against sin, whatever sin we're talking about. God's grace in Christ has the power not only to rescue us from sin's penalty, but to actually change us, to transform us increasingly into the image and likeness of God. And that's an ongoing process for every single one of us. But it's a necessary process to pursue. If we're not pursuing growth in our personal holiness, then we are trivializing sin And trivializing grace. You have been bought with a price. Now that's not the easy road. Self-denial never is. All of us have to cling to Christ. And the power of his spirit. For the strength to say no. To passions and actions. That are contrary to God's holy character. That's the hard road. And as Wesley Hill, uh, a New Testament scholar and a, a celibate gay Christian, writes in his excellent book, Washed and Waiting, this is the only truly fulfilling way for Christians who have same-sex attraction to live. Uh, Wesley writes, imitating Jesus, conforming my thoughts, beliefs, desires, and hopes to his, sharing his life, embracing his gospel's no to homosexual practice, I become more fully alive, not less. According to the Christian story, true Christ-like holiness is the same thing as true humanness. To renounce homosexual behavior is to say yes to full, rich, abundant life. And similarly, my friend uh, Christopher Yuan, reflecting on his own pursuit of holiness amid homosexual attraction, he reminds us that, quote, Change is not the absence of struggle. Change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. And so we need to pursue Christ with all the arsenal that God has given us, his word, his spirit, and his family. And when we find ourselves hitting bottom in those struggles and giving in or burning out, remember the truth of the gospel. Remember the sinfulness of sin and the sufficiency of grace. Remember that you're not alone in your struggle. That you have a family in Christ who loves you and is rooting for you and is right there with you in it, fighting their own fight. And you have a Savior who is able to sympathize with you in your weakness. Because in every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
And finally, we must all hope together in the promise of the gospel that there will come a day when the battle will finally be over. There will come a day when every residue of human rebellion and brokenness in this world will be taken away, when sin will be no more, temptation will be no more. God's new creation will shine in its full glory for all eternity, and we will receive, as Paul puts it, our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is our true hope in the face of all sin. And with regard to homosexuality, we must remember that that with such a contentious topic, such a publicly discussed and debated topic, that whatever quote-unquote victory we're looking for on this issue, it's not going to come in the form of legislation, boycotts, or the like. It doesn't mean that public engagement is unimportant. I believe that it is critical for Christians to continue to uphold a biblical definition of marriage regardless of what the Supreme Court tells us. And that it's critical that all people be treated with dignity and respect and basic human rights. Those are not antithetical to each other. But our hope for God's glory in this matter does not rest in Congress or the judiciary or the Oval Office It rests squarely with Jesus Christ, a king of kings who is sufficient and who will come again to finish his work of new creation and make all things new. That is our hope. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, We wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, your word is risky. And we have run a risk today in opening it to talk about a subject that has brought a lot of pain and confusion to people everywhere. But Lord, I believe that your gospel is worth the risk. And so I pray that you would take your word and apply it to our lives. Fill our hearts with humility and compassion and care and renew in us not a a trivial view of you or of sin or of grace, but a fully robust view of how incredible you are and how comprehensive your gospel is in its ability and power to change us. Lord, may that be our hope and our song. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.